1847, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, published the Communist Manifesto. I'm just curious, how many of you have read the Communist Manifesto? Just raise your hand real quick. Anybody read it? A few people. Okay. Anybody own it? No, you don't have to admit to that. Okay, that's 1848, the Communist Manifesto. Now, they were neither the first nor the last to put forward such a statement, a, a statement of political action. 75 years earlier, the, our own Continental Congress had published the Declaration of Independence. Maybe you've never thought of that in the same terms as the Communist Manifesto, but actually they are of exactly the same genre, though not of the same political uh, persuasion. Eighty years after Marx, a group of philosophers and, and academics and even some ministers put their signatures to the Humanist Manifesto, a very different kind of document. Now, all of these are old examples, but lest you think that manifesto writing has gone the way of the, the dinosaur, uh, just a few years ago, Ron Paul published his own program of reform entitled The Revolution, a Manifesto. And I was just uh, reading a review of uh, Sheryl Sandberg's recent work, Lean In, and it was described as a feminist manifesto. You see, we like manifestos. Uh, maybe you don't typically use that word, but, but we like them. We, we write them all the time. Most companies have them, though they don't call them manifestos, they call them mission statements. Actually, most churches have them too, though they're likely to use the language of vision statement rather than mission statement or manifesto. But, but whatever you call it, people who want to see change, people who want to accomplish something other than the status quo, will have a manifesto, a public declaration of their intentions, their motives, their plans for change. They, they, they kind of work as a, as a call to arms, a, a rallying cry for the troops. And they also then become a point of public accountability to see if you're actually living up to your agenda. Now, of course, a manifesto is always full of ideals and aspirations and therefore it's really only as good as its execution. This is why we remember the Communist Manifesto. It was successfully executed, at least for a time. It's why we remember the Declaration of Independence. It actually has no governing force in America, but it got accomplished. And so we remember it. It's why no one remembers the October Manifesto of 1905. That was the manifesto written to stop the Russian Revolution didn't work. So no one remembers it. Manifestos are only as good as their execution. Now, it's one thing for governments and rebels and companies to have manifestos. What if God had one? What if God actually told us what his plans, his intentions, and his, and his motives were? I think there are many people that look around the world and they, and they wish they knew what God's manifesto was. They, they wonder, is he doing anything at all? What, what is God up to? Well, if we knew, 
Would it make a difference? Would it make a difference in how we live? This winter, we've been considering the original liberation theology of the Exodus narrative. And even though the entire Bible, in one sense, could be understood as God's manifesto, we we come to a chapter this morning, a very short chapter of 10 verses, that, that I think is one of the clearest, most succinct summaries of what we might call a divine manifesto. What is God doing in the world? In Exodus chapter 11, God publicly states his intentions, his plans, and his purposes. So turn with me, if you would, there to Exodus chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 103. 103. Exodus chapter 11. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses. Exodus 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. All right, in in this short chapter, these, these 10 verses, what we have is a divine manifesto, a clear statement, first, of God's God's intentions, his his promise for change. That's verses one to three. A clear statement of God's promise for change. Then in verses four to eight, we we, we get his plan. How's he going to do it? His plan for change. And then in verses 9 and 10, we find out his purpose for change. Why is he going to do it? What's he going to do? How is he going to do it? Why is he going to do it? It's what's laid out in chapter 11. As we think about God's manifesto for his Old Testament people Israel, I'd invite you to consider this morning what it means for you. So first, God's promise for change. Look again there at verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. 
the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Now, if you remember back to the end of chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, it appears that all is lost, that, that the story is over. Pharaoh is absolutely adamant. He is obstinate in his refusal to let Israel go. He, he's not going to let them go, and it, and it seems like nothing can induce him to change his mind, not, not even the nine plagues that had just happened, not even the plague that they were in the middle of at that moment, total darkness for three days. So as chapter 11 opens, it opens with a restatement of God's promise for change. It it looks like nothing's going to change. It looks like Pharaoh is adamant. He's not going to let them go. And so chapter 11 opens with, well, yeah, but not all is as it appears, actually. But the promise hasn't changed. And it's a promise of full deliverance. The time had finally come. Unlike all the other plagues that had happened before, those first nine, according to God, this this tenth plague, this one, will have the desired effect of causing Pharaoh to capitulate entirely. There will be no conditions attached this time by Pharaoh. No, No stipulations, no caveats. And there will be no going back on his word. According to God here, he won't merely allow Israel to leave. He will insist that they leave. He will drive them out, actually, completely. But in driving them out, they're they're not going to be kicked to the curb, as it were. They're not going to be thrown out of their homes empty-handed. That's not really a very great deliverance. That's not really a very great freedom. Instead, God, God says... Tell everybody you need to ask your Egyptian counterparts for articles of value, for for silver, for, for gold. Because God had made sure that their request would be granted. He had caused the Egyptians, the God who holds the hearts of all in his hands, he had caused the Egyptians to look favorably upon the Israelites. Now, it's kind of extraordinary when you think about it. Not only... Is Egypt going to be devastated by this final plague? But they're going to be robbed. They're going to be picked clean. And there's kind of a, an awesome and terrible justice in what's about to happen. The Israelites who had worked as slave laborers for Egypt are not going to leave Egypt empty-handed. They are going to be paid in full. Maybe even with interest is the way we should think about this. Now, there is so much in these opening three verses that we can learn about God in this, in this, in this opening of his manifesto. I want to just outline a few. T- to begin with, God is not like us. God is not like us. With man, justice delayed is justice denied. But not with God. Not with God. The the promise delayed does not mean that the promise has been denied, that the promise is never going to be kept. No, God keeps his promises, as he makes very clear here. He's going to keep his promises, but he's going to keep them according to his timetable. In fact, he's going to keep his promise at just the right time, as we'll see. Now, that means something for us, I think, as Christians, as followers of this God who has made promises to us. It means that being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus Christ means learning 
patience. A patient hope in the promises of God. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this one, right? I want everything fixed by the weekend. I I, I want all the promises kept yesterday. Because because life is hard. Because these promises matter, and I'm I'm, I'm counting on it. I'm, I'm banking on these promises. That's not God's way. God doesn't work according to our timetable. He will keep his promise, but he will keep his promise, every single one of them, at just the right time. The, the time that he has decided. So, so just speaking to, to some of you here this morning who, who are believers, who you've put your hope in Christ, and, and you are counting on some particular promises. Uh, you, you know that God has promised to, to deliver you from sin. You know that God has promised to hear and and answer your prayers. And there are some particular prayers that you've been praying for a long time. What what promise are you waiting for? Can can you trust that God's timing is best? Not just his answer is best, but his timing in, in bringing that answer is best. And that he knows not only how to answer your prayers, but when. Friends, this must be just fundamental to what it means to follow this God. Because he's not like us. But second, not only does God keep his promises in his own timing, he keeps them better than they first appeared. So, so you notice that there in, in, in verse 2 with, with telling the, the neighbors to go ask for articles of silver and gold. It's not just that Israel is going to be freed from their slavery to Egypt. It is that they're going to be enriched in their liberation. They don't leave empty handed. They leave with all of those back wages paid. They, they, they leave actually with, with a bonus, as it were, that they didn't have any reason to count on. Christian, isn't it the same with us? God keeps his promises even better than than they first appeared. God hasn't merely forgiven you. You, 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 Christian, you've put your faith in Christ. You've trusted in the promise that if you'll put your faith in Christ, he will forgive you of your sins. And, And he keeps that promise. But he hasn't just forgiven you. And then sent you on your way. Okay, now try to do better with the rest of your life. No, he's adopted you. As his son, as as his daughter. He's, He's made you an heir with Christ. He has filled you with every spiritual blessing. Or think think about his promise to to come back. There's a promise that we hang on to, right? Jesus Christ has promised to come back and to take us to be with him. But in making that promise, he didn't just stop there and say, okay, now now just hang on until I get back. You know, I I hope you do okay until I do get back. No, he sent his spirit to indwell with us. He, He is with us to the very end of the age. He is present with us. He is actually interceding for us every single day, every single minute at the right hand of the Father And doesn't he even now sometimes part the clouds 
and give you a present taste of heaven's joys? A a bit of a foretaste of of what is to come, even in the midst of this sin-soaked world? This is the kind of God we serve, and don't forget it. In the midst of trials, in the midst of troubles, in the midst of suffering, God not only keeps his promises, he surpasses them. And as believers, I think we need to become students, experts, as it were, in being able to see that, see all the ways in which God keeps and surpasses the very promises that he's made to us. Finally, just note a third thing to note about God. When God sets his people free, it's not a half-baked job. You know, it's not half done. When he sets his people free, that freedom is complete. There are no strings here. Pharaoh is going to drive them out completely. No tails, no no conditions. And of course, this is a picture of what God has done for us as believers. When Christ sets us free from sin's condemnation and from Satan's power, he sets us free completely. Now, your your emotions may tell you otherwise. In your life these days, you, you may feel Satan's condemnation. You may very much feel the the power and the pull of sin. But the reality is because of what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross, Satan has no more claim on your life. None. Nada. Zip. Nothing. No more claim. Yes, sin remains. I understand that. Your, Your pastor sins daily. Actually, More often than daily. So I understand that sin remains. But it's been paid for. It has been dealt with. The condemnation of sin has been removed completely. And therefore there is is freedom in our lives. There is freedom from sin's claim on our life. Believer, we need to live this way. And, and I just want to ask you, do, do you? Do, do you live as if you're still a slave to sin? Do you understand that, that the power of sin and its ability to condemn us has been broken because of Jesus Christ? And of course, the day will come when it's not just freedom from sin's condemnation and power, but the day will come when there will be freedom from sin's presence. When it won't even be with us anymore. And there is a hope that we need to live in. Believer, you should be thinking about these things. These should be sort of your bread and butter every day. As you apply the gospel to yourself. And the truth of the complete, the full atonement that Jesus Christ has made for you. The full freedom that he has given you from sins power and sin's condemnation even as you look forward to the day when you're free from sin's presence well that's god's promise that's that's the opening paragraph of the manifesto god's promise full deliverance from the serpent king's power so what's his plan how's he going to accomplish it well look at verse four so moses said this is what the lord says 
About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Here's the plan. Here's here's the reason that Pharaoh will finally change his mind. Now, now like the the final plague, you know, we've looked at the first nine and they came in these three sets of three. And and like the final plague in each of those previous three sets, there's there's really no warning here. and, And Moses doesn't do anything. Moses doesn't set it in action. God simply acts and he acts directly. I will go throughout Egypt, he says. And when he walks through the land, as it were, it's, it's really the, the, the image of a king on royal procession. As he walks through the land, every firstborn will die. From the greatest to the least. That's the point of from Pharaoh's throne to the slave girl's handmill. From the greatest to the least, and that means everything in between. The firstborn will die. Even the firstborn cattle are included, which anticipates what we're going to see next week with the Passover regulation, that the firstborn of every man, the firstborn of every animal belongs to God. Now, as as we're going to see next week for Israel, there will be an offer of redemption, a, a, a substitute that can be offered so that the firstborn does not have to die. But for the Egyptians, no such offer is available. Remember, these plagues are final judgment on Egypt. God's plan for change, therefore, is salvation. Israel is going to be saved, but it's salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Why the firstborn? Well, it's a claim of lordship. The Lord, the king who owns it all, receives the first fruits. A token, since he gets what's first, that everything that follows also belongs to him. Since the firstborn is, is the heir, well, it's, it's a claim that everything Pharaoh has, since everything Pharaoh has belongs to his heir, and since the heir belongs to God, well, it's a claim, a clear claim, that everything Pharaoh has, everything Egypt has, actually belongs to God. And he can take it. He not Pharaoh, the Lord, and the Lord alone is Lord of Egypt. To make that point clear, this plague will fall and it will be devastating. It is hard, actually, to get our minds around the devastation that was going to come. Loud wailing throughout the land, God says, like never heard before and never to be heard again. Thousands upon thousands Upon thousands dead overnight. And no one left to comfort. Because everyone is grieving. No house untouched. 
Now, like all the other plagues, we see there that in verse 7, that this plague is meant to confirm God's gracious choice of Israel as much as it is meant to punish Egypt. It is salvation through judgment. It's not just judgment. It is salvation through judgment. And the result is that the tables are turned completely. Now it will be the Egyptians' turn to cry out. And and, and there Moses uses the exact same word that was used back in chapter 3, verse 7, to describe the Israelites crying out to God. And God finally hearing their cry. Now, now it will be the Egyptians' sons who are killed. After having already killed so many Israelite babies. Now it will be Pharaoh and his officials coming to Moses. Rather than Moses coming to Pharaoh. Now it will be, it will be Pharaoh and his officials bowing down to Moses. Begging them to leave. Salvation through judgment. Friends, there's so much here that we can learn about the gospel, about God's plan to save his people. And first, salvation through judgment means that God makes a distinction between his people and Satan's people, between his people and the people of the world. But it's important to notice the distinction is not based in his people. It's based in his choice. God's choice, based in God's gracious choice. There's no room for national pride here on Israel's part. We've seen that all the way through. Israel's not even looking for salvation at this point. Christian, there's no room for personal pride on our part. Far be it that any Christian would walk around thinking that somehow, because I'm a Christian, I'm better than them. I'm better than others. I'm I'm better than, than those people. Whatever group of people fits into that category of those people. Far be it that we would ever be characterized by that kind of thinking or that kind of attitude. Because we're not better. Left to ourselves, we're right there with everybody else deserving of God's condemnation. No, we have received a gift. What Christians should be actually is is more humble than everybody else. Not more righteous, not more self-righteous, no more humble. Because we understand that we have received a gift, a gracious gift that we did not deserve. Second, notice the distinction that God does not make. Just judgment falls on all. Judgment falls on everybody. Wealth and privilege do not spare you just because you're in Pharaoh's household doesn't mean you get a pass. But you know what? Poverty and lowliness doesn't spare you either. Just because you're the the child of the slave girl doesn't mean you get a pass. From greatest to least, all stand under God's judgment. Now, what that tells us right away is that God doesn't judge as we do. Right? We are impressed with outward appearance. Some of us are impressed with outward appearance of greatness. Others of us are drawn to outward appearance of loneliness. But God isn't, isn't impressed with either. God looks at the heart. 
He looks inside and there in the heart, regardless of how you're dressed up on the outside, there in the heart, we all stand condemned. So if you're here today and, and you're, you're not a Christian, I wonder what it is about you that, that distinguishes you that you're putting your hope in. Because I think we all do this. I think all of us are hoping that there's something about us that sets us apart, that, that distinguishes us, that will attract divine favor to us. What is it that you're, you're hoping in? Is it the distinction of of how nice you are? Is it the distinction of your wealth? Is it the distinction of your success or, or your skill? Maybe it's the distinction of your lack of pretentiousness. Maybe it's the distinction of your compassion. Friend, whatever it is, however good it is and noble, or however kind of crass and materialist it is. Whatever it is, you need to understand that the only distinction that matters is whether or not God claims you as his own. That's the distinction that you want to know, that God has claimed you as his own. And and friends, that means a third thing that we learn about the gospel here in God's plan. It, It means that salvation, which comes through judgment, teaches us that the cross of Jesus Christ is necessary for our salvation. I don't don't know what you think about the cross. Uh, The the cross is is not an example for us of of selflessness. The, The cross is not a tragedy. The cross is definitely not a sentimental piece of jewelry or wall art. You see, Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt was a historical event, but it is more than just a mere historical event. The whole thing is designed by God so that it is a picture for us of a far more profound deliverance, the deliverance of God's people, not from earthly physical slavery, but from our slavery to sin and to Satan's power. And that deliverance happens through the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus, the the firstborn son of God, took the judgment that we deserve. Our our lives, and we need to understand this, our lives are forfeit to God. They they are forfeit to God first because he's Lord. I I mean, he owns us. But they are doubly forfeit to God because of our sin and our rebellion. Because we have chosen to, to reject his lordship, we deserve his judgment. But the good news of Christianity, the good news of of Easter. The good news of of Palm Sunday, which is today, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey, rode into Jerusalem in order to die. The good news is that Jesus gave his life in our stead. Jesus, who did not deserve to die, offered himself up as a sacrifice on the cross, bearing God's judgment. So that anyone and everyone who acknowledges his lordship, who who turns away from from their own self-rule and instead puts their faith in him and in his death for them, might not die. But instead, that person might live. Friends, this is what is 
going to be pictured for us in the baptism that is going to conclude our service here in just a few minutes. When, when somebody is baptized, they are publicly identifying with Christ. And as they go down into the water, basically what they're saying is, Christ's death is my death. I, I am identifying with Christ in his death, in his death for me. So that as they are raised up out of the water, as it were raised up out of the grave, they are acknowledging the life I now live is not my life. It's Christ's life for me. He was resurrected for me. And I now identify with him in that death and in that new life. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. Not that Jesus Christ will teach you to be better. But that Jesus Christ will give you life. Life abundant. A life that you cannot find on your own. A life that you desperately, desperately need. And he gives it freely to all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, today is the day that you could become one. Today is the day to turn away from your own self-rule and instead to put your faith in Christ. I'm going to be standing at the door in the back. I'd love it if you talk to me about this after the service or, or talk with the friend that you came with. But do not delay. Now, now as, a, as a church, there are things for us to learn here too. As a church, I think this means, this, this distinction means that what should distinguish us from the world around us is nothing other than God's gracious choice in our lives. What distinguishes us from the world is God's grace. Not our politics. Not our ethnicity. Not our socioeconomics. But God's grace. His choice in our lives as it then works itself out in our lives, ca causing us to, to live differently, to live lives that are no longer slaves to the world's passions, but lives that now instead are slaves to God. We also understand that our task as a church is to make the same announcement that Moses is making here. We don't, we don't enact judgment We've just been given a message. We also can't save anyone. But we have been given a message. And just as Moses announces it here, so we are called to make that same announcement. And our announcement is really no different. Jesus Christ is Lord and King. And judgment is coming. But it hasn't come yet. Or, or maybe more precisely... To our great relief and hope, it has already come at the cross. So that in Christ, judgment has happened. So the people who deserve judgment don't have to experience it. Friends, that's the message that we proclaim. And it includes the message that the day is coming when Jesus will come back. And on that day, there will be final judgment. On that day, there will no longer be an opportunity to repent and find salvation. But that day has not yet come. And so today is the day of salvation. There is an urgency, in other words, to our task, brothers and sisters. There is an urgency to our task. We do not know how many days the Lord has given us. 
to proclaim this message of salvation through judgment. So let's not waste one of them. God's promise, full deliverance. God's plan, salvation through judgment. But finally, what's his purpose in all of this? Why is he even bothering to do this? Look in verse 9. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Why does God bother to make a distinction between his people and the people of the world? Why why does God bother to, to keep his promise of salvation? Well, very clearly here, as we see there in verse nine, not because Israel is so great and not because Egypt is so bad, but rather so that his wonders would be multiplied. God's purpose is the display of his own glory. That's why God does what he does to glorify himself. This is why Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as these two verses say. This is why judgment came to Egypt. But it's also why salvation came to Israel. Not, not because God was somehow bound to act by a standard of justice that was external to himself and, and kind of forced his hand. Not because of a plea for mercy that he couldn't ignore. Not because he had some internal need for for retribution and he just had to act. Not because he had some need. Israel was going to fulfill like, like he needed a people and he was incomplete without that people. And so, so he had to do this so he could fulfill some need that he had. No, none of those things. God judged Egypt. And God saved Israel for one and the same reason. So that his glory would be publicly displayed and magnified and multiplied for everyone to see. Now, I think, honestly, there's maybe nothing more difficult in the Bible for us to get our minds around, nor important, nor more important than this. Salvation and judgment, both, are not about us. They are about God. They are about God's glory. Israel's liberation from Egypt was not because Israel deserved it. And by the same token, therefore, the cross was not because somehow we deserved some means of salvation. Friends, the cross did not happen because God loved me so much. I'm going to say that again. The cross did not happen Because God loved you so much. Not finally, not ultimately. Because you understand, if that were so, then that would put me, that would put you at the center of the universe. God does what he does because he he loves you so much. Because he loves me so much. Now don't get me wrong, he does love you so much. And he does love me so much. And the cross is a display of how great his love is. But that cannot be the final reason for the cross. Because if it is, then we 
are at the center of the universe. And everything God does is because of us. It's just not true. And we need to understand this. God created the world. God chose some for salvation. God passes over others in judgment. And he accomplishes both that salvation and that judgment through the cross of Jesus Christ because God loves God's glory most and above all things. God loves God's glory. And he always acts to see that his glory goes forward and is displayed. God's glory is at the center of the universe. God's glory is at the center of his plans for this world. God's glory is at the center of his plans for your life. God's glory is at the center of his plans for my life. And it should be. It is right that it is this way. Because there is nothing greater. There is nothing more beautiful. There is nothing more worthy than that God should be seen for who he is in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. The most beautiful, the most praiseworthy, the most glorious one, worthy of all worship and all praise. Friends, if God is not at the center of it all, then he's not God. So Christian, can you declare the glory of God in your salvation? Absolutely. I have no doubt that you can. But can you declare the glory of God in your suffering? Can you declare the glory of God in your temporal losses and crosses? Can you declare the glory of God in the judgment of sin and sinners, even when that means the judgment is falling on sin and sinners? They're very dear to your heart. Can you say in all things, glory be to God? You know, what's amazing is not that God's glory would be displayed through the judgment of sin. What's amazing is that God's glory would be accomplished through our salvation from sin. Friends, this, when, when we get our, our minds around this, this, this changes everything. It changes the way we think about our lives. When life is no longer about me, but about God's glory, it changes how I respond to present suffering. I, I remember that, that, that life is not about me, that the world is not meant to revolve around me, but it is about God and his glory. And so I recognize that the trials of today, the very real suffering of today has been brought into my life By the hand of a loving father who displays his glory as he demonstrates his sufficiency in the midst of my weakness. It changes the way I think about my sin. My sin now is no longer a a, a pleasure that God wants to deny me. And I see it now for what it really is. An assault on the glory and the kindness and the mercy of God who saved me. It changes the way I think about my marriage and my kids. They are now no longer people who basically exist to meet my needs. And I recognize them as as 
as people who were created in the, in the image of God, that, that are a gift from God to me, and that I need to give back to him for his purposes, for his glory. It changes the way I think about my job. My job is no longer merely a, a means to put food on the table, or even worse, my job is no longer my identity. But no, no, my job now is simply a context for living out the lordship of Christ to the glory of Christ. You see how this works uh, again and again from, from the mundane to the most profound aspects of my life. Understanding that God does everything he does for his glory and not mine changes everything. And it changes it in a wonderful way. It sets me free. It sets me free to no longer live for the desires of this world or, or, or my own desires, which are passing away every single one of them. It sets me free instead to live for God's glory, a glory that will endure, a glory that will never fade. What manifesto drives your life? What, what agenda drives your life? The fact is, no other agenda matters but God's. And God has declared what he is doing. He's declared it clearly in his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. He is accomplishing the full deliverance of his people through judgment, the judgment of sin in Christ. And he's doing it to his own everlasting glory. Friends, God's manifesto, like every manifesto, is a rallying cry. Make his glory your manifesto. And do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do not think of our sin deeply enough. It does not offend us the way it should. This is because we don't understand your glory. Father, our forgiveness, our salvation in Christ does not humble us as it should. But again, this is because we so little appreciate your glory displayed in our salvation. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to understand what you are doing in this world. We pray that we would turn away from our own manifestos, our own agendas, and instead, by your grace, turn to yours and find their life and life everlasting. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.